Thank you for listening to the podcast ministry of Harvest Baptist Church. The following message was delivered by Pastor Kurt Skelly and is part of a series entitled Acts, the Gospel Mobilized. When I was 14 years of age, my summer was quickly approaching and my parents had no clue what to do with me. I wasn't really a trustworthy 14-year-old. I was too young to have a job and I was... uh, too old to stay out of trouble and so uh, my parents decided that they would send me away on a trip. How many parents would love to send your, uh, okay, um, how many would like to send your husbands away on, okay. Um, but I, uh, my parents signed me up for this, this trip, this, this adventure, this wilderness experience called Adventure Challenge. Uh, you know, I know that you you're probably shocked when I tell you that I'm, I'm not really the outdoorsman type. As a matter of fact, roughing it to me is like not getting the suite at Motel 6. Um, and so I, uh, I was going to go on this wilderness experience thing. But, you know, as a 14-year-old kid, you're like, man, this would be great. You know, go live out in the mountains and live off the land. And now, mind you, I'd never hunted or fished or camped out, but I was just sure that there's not much to it, you know. So I decided that I would go on this, this trip. I agreed that I would go on this trip. I'll never forget going to Manchester, Connecticut, and meeting the other attendees of the group. And uh, we went to the, uh, the, 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 the leader's home. His name was Frank. And he was the leader of this group called Adventure Challenge. And what he had done is started this little business of providing adventures. uh, And you had to pay a price. And he uh, bought a school bus, like a 1972 school bus. And he had taken out all the seats in the back half of the bus and strung hammocks from window to window. So that, that, that was the sleeping. And then the first half of the bus, he left the seats in. And so you loaded your gear underneath the hammocks. If you wanted to sleep, you could sleep in a hammock. And if you wanted to just enjoy the journey, you could ride in the seat. And that was our transportation from Manchester, Connecticut, to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. At 50 miles an hour. (laughs) Slower uphill. And so I mean to tell you, we lived on that bus for several days. We finally arrived in Jackson Hole, and on the trip, I'm noticing that all of the other teenagers on this trip are, I'm beginning to get to know them, and I'm learning that they're, they're troubled. They're troubled teenagers. I'm learning this, this one here is, you know, on parole. <laughs> this one just got out of the detention center, and I, and, I, and I got to thinking, I said, you know, why would my parents put me on this trip with all these troubled Oh, <laughs> so I was a troubled kid on this trip. So we went to, to this, uh, to this uh, ho- a little hotel in Jackson Hole just that first night. And then we were to go to the trailhead and we were going to spend the next 15 days in the wilderness. So we were all excited. We had our backpacks all packed and, and we were driving up to the trailhead and it was beautiful. I mean, we got the bus up to the trailhead, and I mean, we stayed the, the first night at this lake, and it was just absolutely picturesque. A beautiful lake, and the, the Grand Teton Mountains, and our, our guide pointed out that, that that one mountain over, see that peak out there? Uh, we're going to climb that peak. And I'm thinking, this is great. 
this is great. We're staying by the lake. We're going to climb a mountain. I mean, uh, the sound of music was already reverberating in my mind that this is going to be incredible. And so we camped that first night. I had the greatest expectations for this 15-day wilderness experience until the third hour of the first day. Realizing with this 90-pound backpack, I was 14 years old. I weighed about 92 pounds. I mean, I was hating life. I was hating life. You say, Pastor Skelly, did you do all the things they said you would do? Yeah. Yeah, we, we hiked to that mountain. We climbed the mountain. Was it a beautiful view? It was a beautiful view. I mean, looking back, was it a great experience? It was a great experience. But I'm telling you, for 15 days, I hated life. I learned this. I learned that a vision of something is much different than the accomplishment of something. I learned that the vision of something looks way different than the accomplishment of something. In Acts chapter 16 and verse 9, the the Apostle Paul received a vision of something. What a great vision it was. Matter of fact, as we study the New Testament, it might be the greatest vision of all the New Testament. The great Macedonian call. The great vision that Paul received. Were it not for the vision of Acts chapter 16 and verse 9, the gospel never would have gone to Europe. It was that vision that God used strategically to get the gospel from Asia, Troas, to Philippi, Europe. It was uh, that great vision that people have looked back to over the years to say that that was a signal event in church history, the great Macedonian call. Churches have named themselves Macedonia. Uh, Mission boards have named themselves Macedonia. Why? It was such a great call of God, a great vision. And yet how the vision unfolded was much different than what the vision actually was. Big visions look great. Big visions move us. Big visions motivate us. But it's the everyday obedience to those visions that sometimes destroys us and sidetracks us. I want to talk for a few minutes this morning on this topic, a vision for the gospel. A vision for the gospel. That's what God gave Paul. That's what God, by extension, gave Timothy and Luke and Silas, the companions of Paul. He gave them a vision for the gospel, and they were faithful to that vision. I want to show you this morning using this text of Scripture, what a vision for the gospel looks like in their lives, in our lives, in the life of our church. A vision for the gospel. Father, bless the message. We really want to be a gospel-centered church. We really want to be better and more obedient, more accountable to the message that you've given us. And so, Father, I pray that you would Do a work on the inside of each one of us in this service. Use your word by your spirit. Help us to learn and to grow, to be challenged, inspired, even convicted. Please bless this message, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. What does a vision for the gospel do? When we put on the the 2020 glasses of gospel vision, when we begin to see the world the way that God sees the world, when we begin to understand the the call that's upon our lives as Bible-believing Christians to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ, what does that mean? 
What does a, a vision for the gospel require? What does it demand in our lives? Let me make four statements this morning. And I hope that each one of these will help us to understand better a vision for the gospel. First of all, a vision for the gospel, a vision for the gospel demands a strategy for its proclamation. A vision for the gospel demands a strategy for its proclamation. You know what is interesting to me about the vision that Paul saw in Acts 16 and verse 9? There wasn't much to it. The, the vision that Paul saw in Acts chapter 16 and verse 9, it wasn't long. Honestly, if, if you were to time the vision by what the man said, it was a, a few seconds. Paul saw this vision. And a few second vision changed his life. A few seconds of God's word, a few seconds of understanding his responsibility changed his direction. What was it? What was this vision? Well, the Bible says it's just a man, an unnamed man. We never do know the man. Don't even know if it's a real man. But a man that Paul sees in this vision, and the man simply says, come over into Macedonia and help us. No specificity. Doesn't say, okay, Paul, my name is, and here's my address and to come to Macedonia, but specifically, I want you to come to Philippi, and specifically, I want you to come to this street, and specifically, I want you to lodge, lodge in this house, and, and then when you get there, I'm going to have a list of, of priorities for you to begin to uh, obey, and I'm going to have places for you to go, and people for whom, uh, to whom you need to witness, and I'm going to have an entire goal sheet that you need to follow, because, I mean, after all, this is the gospel. Paul received none of that. All Paul received in Acts 16 and verse 9 was a very general vision. True, nonetheless, but general. It's about come over into Macedonia and help us. And yet the Apostle Paul was able to take that call, that vision, and superimpose upon it his strategy. A strategy that had already been guiding him. A strategy by which he had already been living. A strategy that had been his now for years of gospel ministry. Paul was able to take the general call and apply a, a strategy of ministry on top of it and accomplish great things for the cause of Jesus Christ. A, a vision for the gospel demands, demands a strategy for its proclamation. Pastor Kelly, what strategy? I mean, what what? How can I be strategic? Pastor Skelly, I, I'm just working down at the, at the machine shop. But, I mean, am I supposed to have a strategy for the gospel? Hey, Pastor Skelly, I, I get in my car every day and fight traffic and go down to Pittsburgh. And I work in the office building down. Am I supposed to have a strategy? I thought a strategy for the gospel, that's for the missionary. That's for the Dave Barnhouses of this world. That's for the Seth and Nicole Stokes of this world. That's for missionaries. I mean, am I supposed to have a strategy for the gospel? I think you are. What is that strategy? What was the strategy that the Apostle Paul superimposed on top of this great vision that he received from God, whereby he was effective as a gospel proclaimer? What was that strategy? I think it was multifaceted, but let me give you at least four of the facets of that strategy that the Apostle Paul had. First of all, I believe that the Apostle Paul's strategy was a new ground strategy. A new ground strategy. What do you mean by that? A new ground strategy. Well, that was Paul's stated philosophy. 
In Romans chapter 15 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul was writing the church at Rome and he said to them, he said, Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel. So have I endeavored, tried to preach the gospel. So have I strived to preach the gospel. Not where Christ was named. Not where Christ was named. Lest I should build upon another man's foundation. What was the Apostle Paul's strategy? His strategy was, boy, if I had to choose, it's not that Paul never went to places that had heard the gospel. He did. But Paul's philosophy, Paul's stated philosophy, Paul's strategy was, I want to go places that have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, Pastor Skelly, if that be the case, we all need to move from Western Pennsylvania because this area is gospel saturated. And you're right. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people in your life, people in your circle of influence, people at your workplace, people with whom you come in contact. That does not mean that there are people that have never heard a clear-cut presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For indeed, there are. There are people that call you friend. There are people that call you coworker and neighbor. There are people that know you, know about you, that have never heard a clear-cut presentation of the gospel. And we ought to have a new ground strategy when it comes to reaching people for Jesus Christ. I mean, there ought to be people that we're thinking about. There ought to be people that we're praying for. There ought to be people that uh, we have on a list somewhere, people that we envision in our minds that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul had a new ground strategy when it came to preaching the gospel. But not only did he have a new ground strategy, he had what I call a Jew first strategy, a Jew first Paul's strategy was this, I'm going to preach the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Now think about it. The Apostle Paul, he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. That was his calling. God made that clear from the get-go. When Paul was saved on the road to Damascus, when he later on gave his testimony to Agrippa, the Apostle Paul said, hey, God told me I'm going to the Gentile people. God told me that. He clarified that vision through Ananias. I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. But he loved his people. He made that very clear. In Romans chapter 9, he said, I could wish that uh, myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Uh, I, could, uh, I, I could wish that I were dead. I, I would go to hell for my people. Wow, what a love. What a passion. He said, uh, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I mean, the apostle Paul loved his people. He loved the Jews, but he was called to the Gentiles. Well, what did Paul say? Paul said, but my stated philosophy is wherever I go, I'm going to give the Jews the first chance at the gospel. Wherever I go. When he went to uh, Derby and to Lystra in the second missionary journey, when he went here to Philippi, when he went to Thessalonica, when he went to Berea, later on in Corinth, what did the Apostle Paul do? He went to the synagogue, or if there were not a synagogue, he'd go to the place where the Jews would gather, and there he would give the Jew the, the opportunity for the gospel. Why? He loved his people. He loved it. It was his strategy. Do you love your people? Who are the people that, uh, who are your people? My wife is so funny. She, 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 she speaks Spanish as her first language. Uh, when she gets mad and just says things to me in Spanish, I just pretend she's saying romantic things. It makes for a, a great marriage. But uh, she, uh, uh, she, she uh, in this area, there aren't many Spanish people. But she, she loves the Spanish-speaking people. And so she, if she sees a bumper sticker that says Puerto Rico, she stalks them. 
Like she'll ride on their bumper and follow them and follow them in Walmart and just say things in Spanish to try to get the attention and then go right down into it. Well, she loves, she, and she, she has that love, she has that passion. For whom do you have a passion? Who are your people? Who are the people that you just feel that natural commonality for and with? But you ought to have a special love for. Some people, they're easy to have a burden for. Who's that person in your life? Paul's stated philosophy, new ground. Paul's stated philosophy, Jew first. Paul's stated philosophy, hub city. He had a hub city philosophy. He would go to a new region, and when he went to a new region, he would always go to the hub city of that region. Why? He couldn't spend uh, many years there. He knew that he was itinerant. He knew that he was just doing the work of an evangelist. He knew that he was just an apostle and would not be there long term. And he wanted to get the most bang for his dollar buck. And so he would go to a hub city and there preach the gospel. Why? Because from that hub city would spoke out little uh, sections of the gospel and would spoke out uh, little uh, churches planted from that mother church. And the apostle Paul had a strategy Man, I want to make the most of my time and make the most of my efforts and I want to be strategic in the way I go about this. Are we being strategic with the gospel? He had a new ground philosophy. He had a Jew first strategy. He had a hub city strategy. He had a keep it simple, keep it simple strategy. Let me read you the stated strategy of the Apostle Paul as given in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What a great passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul said in chapter 1 and verse 17, he said, Christ, listen to Paul's strategy. Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Unto the Jews a stumbling block, unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, when I go to a place, when I go to a new region, I just tell them about Jesus. Uh, my goal is not to be the most eloquent preacher. My goal is not to have people say, oh, great message. My goal is not to have people be wowed by my oratory. My goal is to show people who Jesus is. And boy, that's our, that ought to be our goal. We don't have to be orators. We don't have to be eloquent. We don't have to be wise. We don't have to be super smart. All we have to do is be faithful proclaimers of the gospel message. Hey, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he loved you enough to die upon the cross for you. He died in your place. He was buried. He rose again. He's the way, the only way to heaven. Trust him today. It's the good news. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is your strategy? Keep it simple. And that's what Paul did. Hey, a vision for the gospel demands a strategy 
for its proclamation. Let me say this, number two. A vision for the gospel places value on the individual person. A vision for the gospel places value on the individual person. Say, Pastor Skelly, how do I know if I'm wearing gospel lenses? Uh, Pastor Skelly, how, how do I know, spiritually speaking, if I have an accurate gospel vision? When your life is about reaching individuals with the gospel. Hey, listen, we can all have a corporate vision. We can all say uh, the untold millions are still untold. We can all look at the beautiful mountain scenery and say, boy, I tell you what, that mountain needs to be climbed. And what a marvelous view that it will afford. We can all talk about world missions and we can all pray for the missionaries and that's well and good and well we ought to. But gospel vision always translates down to the individual person. The vision is general. General visions can motivate us. Boy, look at the mountain. There it is. There's the goal. There's the vision. There's the population center. There's Macedonia. There's the us that we're supposed to help. But every us has individuals and every population center is made up of individual people. And a vision for the gospel will always place value on the individual person. Uh, The vision is general, but the work of the ministry is specific. The vision, oh, it's dynamic. Wow. But the work of the ministry is often mundane as you see the same people every day. As you witness to the same people, as you pray for the same one, as you make progress with the same one, step after step, uh, uh, ascent after arduous ascent, making your way toward that vision cannot, it's not always dynamic. It's not always jazzy. But I'm just telling you what, that's the way the gospel ministry gets done. Because God places value on individual people. Who is that individual? If I I said that gospel vision means uh, value on individuals, who is that individual in your life? Who's the one person right now that, that you're praying for? Who's the one family member right now that you have a great burden for? Who's the one co-worker right now that you've been praying for a strategic opportunity to have that conversation with? Who are those people? The great need of the hours for individual Christians to have a burden for individual Christians. It's alarming how many Christians can live their lives and live their weeks and live their months and go about their Christian existence and never have one person in their lives for whom to have a burden. Who are you inviting? Who are you praying for? Who are you writing? Who are you working on? Who are you talking to? A vision for the gospel always places value on individual people. Number three, a vision for the gospel. A vision for the gospel requires scheduled and intentional attempts to reach people for Jesus Christ. A vision for the gospel, it requires scheduled and intentional attempts to reach people for the gospel. So I'd say to you, when do you reach people for the gospel? You say, well, Pastor Scully, I'm I'm always ready. I'm always available. and I'm always uh, prepared to share the gospel. And you ought to be. And by the way, some of the best opportunities you'll have, even the better opportunities many times in your life will be those that you recognize that you weren't planning on. Just so happened that here this person was. Or uh, just so happened that here's what the... But what are your scheduled attempts? 
What are the ones that you plan ahead of time? I'm going here so I can talk to him. I'm going there so I can talk to her. I'm going to, at, at this block of time in my life, look for people so that I can engage them in conversation about the gospel. Where are those times in your life? And the 168 hours that God gives you that comprise one week, what are the times in your life where you're scheduling and intentional about reaching people for the cause of Jesus Christ? Watch what it says in verse uh, 13 of our text. Acts chapter 16. And watch what it says in verse 13. And on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside. Well, it sounds like they ha have a place to go. It sounds like there's some intentionality involved. We went out of the city by a riverside where prayer was wont to be made. Oh, we know that there are people down by that river, the Gangites River, which is a, a mile and a half outside of, of Philippi to the west. And so they took that mile and a half walk out to the river. Why? Because they know that that's where the Jews meet. There's no synagogue in Philippi. There must not be 10 Jewish families. And, and so the Jewish contingent in Philippi is rather small. But there are some Jews. And, and they're meeting out by the riverside. And, and they're worshiping God. And, and they're praying down by the riverside. And Paul knows this. And his stated philosophy, his strategy is to the Jew first. And, and I want to reach individual people. And so a schedule, an intentional time, he goes down to the riverside not to pray. They're praying. He's going down there because he knows they're praying. He goes down there because he knows they're sincere. He goes down there because he knows that they believe in one God. He goes down there because he knows they're Jews. He goes down there to have a conversation. Many times before I get on an airplane or, or at the airport, I'll pray and say, okay, Lord, you know who's going to sit next to me. And Lord, I'm making a commitment to you right now that I'm going to speak to that person about you. It's always hard. I, I'm a pastor. I've been saved for 33 years. It's still hard for me sometimes to start that conversation. That's why you have to be intentional. That's why you have to ask for God's help. You tell the Lord, I'm going to do this. I'm going to sit there and whoever that is, I'm going to tell them about you. What are your scheduled and intentional times in your life where you say, Lord, Ahead of time, I'm going to start the conversation. I'm going to have the God talk. I'm going to tell people about Jesus Christ. Answer these three questions. First of all, answer the question, why am I here? Everybody needs to answer that question. Why am I here? Why am I here? Why am I here? God, why have you put me here? Not just here on earth, but here. Here in Western Pennsylvania. Why am I here? How about this? Here in my neighborhood. Here in my workplace. Why am I here? It's not just about making money. Is that just about putting in your time? Why am I here? It's always about people. Why am I here? Why am I here? See, sometimes it's easier for the missionary to answer that question. Dave Barnhouse, why am I in Zambia? Well, it's obvious. I'm a missionary. Seth and Nicole could say, why are we in Papua New Guinea? It's obvious. We're missionaries. Sometimes for us that aren't vocationally called, sometimes it's harder for us to answer the question, but the answer is exactly the same. We're here for him. We're here as gospel witnesses. That's why we're here. Why am I here? Otherwise, God should just take us on home to heaven. We're here. We're here to be gospel witnesses. Why am I, where do I start? That's the second question everyone needs to ask himself. Where do I start? 
say, Pastor Skelly, I want to schedule. I want to be intentional. I want to tell people about Jesus Christ. Where do I even start? Start with people that show an interest in the things of God. A, a person in whose heart God might already be working. It's not hard to recognize that. The Apostle Paul went to a place where there was already an interest in God. People are already praying. People are already worshiping God, seeking that God, believing the scriptures. Paul said, let me start there. There are people in your life that have already had the seed planted in their life. There are people in your life that they already are sincere about God and, and that they want their questions answered and they want their prayers answered and they want to know more about God and you're right there in their life. Tell them. Recognize it. Seize the opportunity. Don't be ashamed. Why? Where do you start? Start with people where there's some interest. What do I say? I just tell them about Jesus Christ. I, I, I could give you a plan. You could talk about the sport, four spiritual laws or you could take it down the Romans road or you talk about any kind. But I'm just saying, just tell them about Jesus. Oh, what has Jesus done for you? Well, what does the Bible say about Jesus? That's all Paul did. But when Paul would go to a, a population area, he'd find the Jews and he'd open the, the, the Jewish script, the, the Old Testament scripture and he would just show them who Messiah was. See what this says? See here it says what Messiah? And that's what Jesus did. See here it says that Messiah would be born a virgin. That's what Jesus was, born a virgin. See here where it says Messiah, that his side would be pierced. Well, that's what happened to Jesus. See here where it says Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. See, he's not trying to convince people. That's God's job. He's simply showing people what the Bible says. You know, you can do that. You can show people from your Bible, hey, Jesus is the Son of God. You can show people from your Bible, Jesus died upon the cross. You can show people from the Bible that Jesus rose again. You can show people from the Bible that, that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life as it pertains to eternal life. You can show them that from the Bible. Where do you start? Start with Jesus. Keep it simple. Sometimes we think we have to be at their intellectual level or we've got to be able to answer all their questions. And Listen, just keep on coming back to Jesus. Keep on, well, I don't know about that. Well, what about this? Well, I don't know about that. Well, what about this scientific? I don't know about that. But let me tell you about what I do know. Just understand that the Holy Spirit of God is at work and he's doing things that your intellect cannot do and he's doing things that your debating technique cannot do. He's convicting on the inside with the Word of God. Just keep it simple and Give them Jesus Christ. It's a vision for the gospel. Let me give you one last thought this morning. A vision for the gospel. A vision for the gospel will provide a front row seat. Listen. It'll provide a front row seat for viewing God's marvelous and miraculous power. A vision. A vision for the gospel. It will provide for you a front row seat to view the marvelous and miraculous power of God. You know, wouldn't you like a front row seat for God's power? Have you ever thought about that? I'd love to have been there at the, the parting of the Red Sea. I'd love, to, I'd love to be sitting there and just, just watching as it took place. Wow. I'd love to have had a front row seat at the, 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 the collapse of the walls of Jericho. Wow. How cool. I'd love to have had a front row seat when Jesus fed 5,000 or when Lazarus came out of that grave. I'd love to have had a front row seat. I'd love to have had a front row seat and watch some of Samson's exploits. I'd love to have 
had a front, not in the building, but what? <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? But you know, the Bible says in the New Testament that the power of God is revealed in the gospel. Matter of fact, the Bible says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's a greater power than just sea parting power. It's a greater power than just a wall falling power. It's a greater power than multitude feeding power. It's a greater power because it can save people forever. It's the power of the gospel. And God gives me a front row seat to view the marvelous and miraculous power of God. What did Paul see? Well, notice it in closing. Verse 13 of Acts 16. What did Paul see? What was the miracle? He went down to the city by the riverside where prayer was wanted to be made. We sat down, we spake unto the women which resorted thither. So far, nothing too spectacular to me. Verse 14, and a certain woman named Lydia. Oh, the gospel always finds context in value placed upon individual people. A certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple. Oh, she's a woman of some means. She's a woman of some money. She's a businesswoman. Uh, where a prayer was wont to be made, or rather, uh, of the city of Thyatira. Oh, wow, she's from Asia. She's from Thyatira. Oh, Paul, that's where I wanted to go. That's why I asked God, God, can I please go to Asia? And God told me not to preach the gospel there. And Lord, I was like, why wouldn't you want me to preach the gospel in Asia? What a ripe mission field. And God said, I did want you to preach the gospel in Asia. I want you to preach it in Macedonia so you'll reach this Asian, this girl, Lydia. My ways are higher than your ways. I'm just showing you now the irony of the gospel. Understand this, that God, he has people for you to reach and and you reach them in in strange ways and and God brings divine appointments across your path and here's this woman that wasn't supposed to be in Asia. Uh, She wasn't supposed to be in in, uh, Macedonia. She's supposed to be in Asia and here's Paul who wanted to go to Asia but ended up in Macedonia but there they both met by the riverside because they both were Jews and man, God made that thing happen. How ironic. She was the first Christian in Europe. How ironic. Well, what a Christian she was. Because not only was her salvation ironic, it was influential. Paul couldn't have known this. Paul couldn't have known when he scheduled and intentionalized going down to preach the gospel. He could never have known that the first person to be saved would be this rich woman who had this huge house, who had all these people working for her, but she did. And what happened? She was so sincere and so influential in her character that when she got saved, everyone around her said, boy, if it's good enough for Lydia, if Lydia needed to be saved, that I need to be saved. And her whole household got saved. All the domestic servants. Everyone, she was influential. So Paul led Lydia to Christ. And now Lydia, her influence, all these other people are getting saved and baptized. And then the Bible says at the end of the chapter, when Paul gets out of jail with Silas, he goes back in verse 40 to Lydia's house. And guess who's, the, guess who's at Lydia's house? The whole church. The brethren. In other words, where does the church at Philippi start? In Lydia's house. That's where they meet. That's where the gospel is preached. That's where the church services are held. How could Paul have known that? When he went down to the riverside. How could he have known that when he just scheduled and intentionalized the gospel. How could he have known that when Lydia got saved? He didn't know any of it. But God knew all of it. 
And Paul got to sit on that front row and say, wow. Oh, you want us to stay in your house? You got room for our whole missions team? Wow. We have to pay rent anymore? Wow. Oh, you want to start your church here? Wow. Oh, all the people in your house got saved? Wow. Wow. Man, if you want to live a life of wow, just start telling people about Jesus. There's all kinds of wows out there. But you've got to start telling people about Jesus Christ. Dr. Don Sisk is our good friend here at Harvest. He's been part of our missions conference for a number of years. I had the privilege several years ago of traveling to the country of Japan with him. That's where he was a missionary. Back in the 1960s, before I was born, in the early 1960s, Don Sisk was in Japan learning the language. Just a poor Kentucky coal mining family boy who was learning Japanese. But he learned it. After he learned Japanese, he had such a desire to start a church, didn't even know the language that well, but decided he would start a Bible study in a rented room. He took me to the very room where he started that Bible study. He thought, I'll, I'll tell people I'm teaching English and that'll bring some people in and as I teach them English, I'll teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so a young man came and told him, I'll, I'll, I'll take your English classes, but I'm not interested in your, in your religion. I'm interested in your language, but I'm not interested in your religion. Dr. Don says, said, okay. He began to teach that young man English by teaching him who Jesus was. But would you know that was his first convert, that young college student. His whole family rejected him. But that young college student got saved. Oh, by, by the way, that young college student ended up taking the little small church that Dr. Sisk planted. He became the pastor. Oh, by the way, he's still the pastor. And this year is their 50th anniversary. Oh, by the way, it's the largest Baptist church in Japan. Oh, by the way, all of his sons are in the ministry. Oh, by the way, his son-in-law is a pastor in Tokyo. Wow. You talk about a front row seat to God's power. All because of what? Because I told somebody about Jesus. How about you? What seat are you in? I'm afraid that many of us are we're outside the stadium altogether. Some of us were content to sit up in the nosebleed section. And God wants you right down courtside, front row, telling people about Jesus Christ.